Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studio of WHUPLP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour, I'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, homeschool you, writer, singer, musician, Bonnie Prince Billy is with us. Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you every week on WHUPFM.org and Evergreen, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Subscribe, download in that order. Downloading seems to be more important than subscribing, but do both. <laughs> Murmurradio.com, social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. Send us an email, murmurradio at gmail.com. Lots of instructions when you listen to this show. Have you noticed? <laughs> Send us a note, and if you have a topic you'd like me to look at one of these weeks, I will match it with a guest and mention you on the show, give you full marks. Maybe we'll call you up. Maybe we'll uh, include you. I don't know. It's just that kind of thing. As Indiana Jones says, I'm making this up as I go along. Murmurradio.com. Welcome. Today on the show, Bonnie Prince Billy, a.k.a. Palace Brothers, a.k.a. Palace Songs, a.k.a. Palace Music. Good old Will Oldham to me. But today, Bonnie Prince Billy is with us. Really excited to have him on the show. I find his work gorgeous. And I, I think his point of view on today's topic will be nothing short of fascinating. And I mean that in a really exciting way. Bonnie Prince Billy momentarily i want to look today at this idea of home and home is a theme i talk about on the show a lot but i want to look at it a different way the physical home the architecture of the home the 99 percent invisible of home in the late 90s as technology exploded in the sense that price points came down technology became more accessible to people there was, as we know it, a sort of decentralization and a democratization of where and who could create. You didn't have to go to school anymore. You didn't have to live in L.A. and New York anymore. We've talked about this. I'm, I don't want to talk about it more today. I want to talk about this other part of that where the people who had technology anew, the new genre of creators, uh, everyday creators, we're creating. And I always wonder, I think the other shoe of this that we haven't dropped yet, we'll drop a little bit of it today, maybe the heel, is where were they creating? The age of these creators was plummeting. So their ability to create started earlier. So these new creators were literally creating in their rooms, in their bedrooms, in their basements. And they still are. I'm just trying to locate where it started, I think, late 80s, early 90s, and it did coincide with the technology boom. Now, people have been creating in their homes uh, since time of memoriam, but technology upped the ante because we could create moving imagery and, and more intricate imagery and sound-based art uh, in our home, in our rooms, in our attics, and wherever the workspace is, in our, in our garages, in our sheds. 
there's two parts to this. Part one are the, uh, when you think of the home, part one is the imagery of youth inside the home. And I don't mean on a psychoanalytic level. I mean, what was your, what was your home like when you were a child? It all feeds into how you create from the very basic where the, where the ceilings high, were they vaulted? Were they low? Was the ceiling, was the, was the basement furnished? Was it not? Was it cold? Was it warm? Did you have sun? Did you have windows? Did you have light? Did you have wall-to-wall carpeting? Did you have wood floors? It's fascinating to me how much that affects the arc of all creatives. And it's not spoken about a lot because it seems rather mundane. If you listen to the show on a weekly basis, mundane is my middle name. <laughs> so we're going to look at this today with Bonnie Prince Billy. That's Act 1. Act 2, so what architecture were you exposed to as a child? Before we get into Act 2, I think part of it for a lot of young people is privacy. Art creation at that young age is is typically done in privacy, whether it's get out mom and dad, I want to be alone and have privacy. There's always that moment, whether you're a creative child or not, there's a moment of I want privacy. I'm getting older. I want my own stuff, my own space, right? This is part of adolescence, puberty. And for the creative, it really goes into another place where the young creative wants privacy to create or paint. They may feel self-conscious about it. They may feel it's a laboratory. So the bedroom becomes a sort of laboratory for creation for people at a year early age, for creatives at an early age. Privacy is something I want to talk more about as we go on the episodes here. Um, so privacy is part of it. The childhood DNA, the the social childhood familial domicile-based DNA. Act two of this is where do you work now? Because as creatives get older, many of them choose to stay in their homes and create. You know, part of it is a self-consciousness. Part of it is a is a is a cozy embrace, the cozy embrace of home. Many people want to stay home and work and create. And it's not simply n- uh, early stage creatives or 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 advo- advocation creation is an advocation people who don't know they're creative may want to do their creations at home it's also sophisticated creatives with resumes like today's guest bonnie prince billy bonnie his bonnie prince billy his um home life and his creative life as you'll hear i'm i'm assuming i'm guessing we'll see that is very stitched together. Uh, he has a home which he shares with his wife and his wife is an artist and um, they are, they're, they're living there and also creating in a workspace five minutes away, five minutes walk away. So that's an interesting, that's an interesting reality of, of accomplished creatives. And every week I bring the show to you and I say from the studio at WHUPFM, and sometimes I step back and think, what is a studio? You know, the the word has different implications. You know, and the irony is sometimes a studio is a studio. Sometimes someone's living in a studio apartment, i.e., no bedroom, and they're creating. So their studio becomes a studio. There's all sorts of relationships between architecture and creation, and emotional reality and home I don't want to say limitations because as we looked at recently limitations are opportunities you know not having when you're a teenager not having locks on your doors will affect you if you want locks on your doors now we could see those those details of our life that are absent as limitations or we could see them now as we look back every week a little bit I don't do a lot of historic looking back in artists' lives. Today is a little different because I want to talk to Bonnie Prince about where he came from in a in a in the sense of his habitat and how he's carried those traditions or not into his life now. What does his habitat look like now? I remember a few years ago I got got the chance to go to Graceland, um, very famous habitat, creative habitat, and I, I loved it. I, I mean. 
I I'm not an Elvis fan in a in a in a in a sycophantic way. But I was fascinated by the home because it was a home. It was a very cozy space. The ceilings were very low. It it, it wasn't a mansion. It didn't have wings. You know, it had the jungle room, the recording room, and but everything felt it felt more like the Brady Bunch house than a place of royalty. And I thought that was really exciting because it put me back in touch with this idea of the home we create one way or another will affect our creativity. Whether we choose to create there or at the office, the desire, the push-pull, the polarity of creation is affected by the physical home. We're going to try to stay away as much from the psyche of the home as we can, but we'll get into that today with Bonnie Prince Billy. Certainly, his mother was an artist, is an artist, his brothers, his dad was a photographer, as an advocation, I'm guessing, but we'll ask him as well. Today, Homeward Bound, Bonnie Prince Billy. Now this. To me, the great hope is that now these little eight millimeter video recorders and stuff are coming around. Some just people who normally wouldn't make movies are going to be making them. And, you know, suddenly one day some little fat girl in Ohio is going to be the new Mozart, you know, and make a, a beautiful film with her little father's camera recorder. And for once, the so-called professionalism about movies will be destroyed forever, you know, and it will really become an art form. That's my opinion. I am a cinematographer. I am a cinematographer. Oh, I am a cinematographer. Oh, I cinematographer and I walked away from New York City and I walked away from everything that's good and I walked away from everything that I lean on only to find it's made of wood made of And I was a big old barrel once Oh, I was a big old barrel once Oh, I was a big old barrel once Oh, I was a big old barrel once And I walked away from California and I walked away from everything that shone And I walked away from everything I lived for Only to find Everything had grown Everything had grown Now I am a cinematographer Oh, I am a cinematographer Oh, I am a cinematographer Oh, I am a cinematographer If you were alone You could walk away So 1991, Hearts of Darkness, really great documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now. At the very end, Francis Coppola, looking into the camera, said, suddenly one day some little fat girl in Ohio is going to be the new Mozart and make a beautiful film with her father's camera. And for once, the so-called professionalism about movies will be destroyed forever and it will really become an art form. That's my opinion. 
Well, today on Murmur, we don't have a fat girl from Ohio, uh, but we have maybe the next best thing. We have a tall polymathic artist from Louisville, Kentucky. We're honored to welcome into the show Mr. Bonnie Prince Billy. Hello. Bonnie Prince, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me on your show. I'll be in transit over the first five minutes or so, and then I'll be settled. So No sweat, man. That's good. Cool. Okay. <laughs> what did you think of that Coppola quote? Had you ever heard that? I remember it from the movie, and and you know when the movie came out, whenever that was, you you just said when it was ninety one uh, and uh, ninety one, and yeah, that's stuck with me. Especially, you know, it's uh, you know there's a potential that that was Coppola's excuse to stop push, pushing himself so hard as filmmaker. Now that the technology is in the hands of of the uh, huddled masses, I can uh, be a little more lax with my filmmaking. <laughs> not my not my problem anymore. Um, he, you know, he was probably referring to the idea that the availability of technology can will reveal to us these, you know, the modern day Emily Dickinson, but in the form of a film or video artist. It does seem to give like short shrift to the idea that you know, that discipline and study have anything to do with making uh, a work of quality. As someone who did a jailbreak out of Providence, Rhode Island, do you think study is essential? Study and discipline are essential, but that's not to say that a institution is where you find it. I mean, it could right, be, right. if you're extremely lucky to be born with these skills, you could be your own, you know, your own disciplinarian and, and your own source of you know, discovering technique, most likely just working with any sort of either a group of people or with a mentor. These are the things that, yeah, will make something that, that someone makes relevant, I think, relevant and powerful as opposed to something that's strictly personal, which I don't think ultimately serves anybody very well. I like how you trail off there. Um, I want to. I want to. I want to kind of start with that because I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sick of talking about oh, technology is everywhere and available. You know, I want to kind of put that aside. I want to because yeah. when I think of Coppola's quote, I, I thought of that fat little girl or that fat little boy, and and I was thinking, you know, there is a kind of space now, and it's been a space where you can be in your room and create. I want to talk to you a little bit about your home as as a kid. Your mom was an artist, right, and your dad. Was, yeah. a, was a photographer. I don't know if he was a reluctant photographer or a, uh, a hobbyist. What was that like living in that world, you know, physically? Like, what was the house? Did the house have art stuff around it, inside it? This is like a very charged subject right now because we've just... Um, my dad passed away 11 and a half years ago. My mom is late stages Alzheimer's. She's just moved into a nursing home about six months or so ago. So we've just finally gone through, you know, their household, you know, because she moved out of the house six months ago and had to figure out what to do with all of the stuff, all of the books and the art and the music, because there was a lot of that from when we were kids. You know, most of the pieces are things that I remember from my whole life. Um, and it was, yeah, I think, they, I don't know if it was intentional, but they did a good job creating uh, an environment that was, it seemed to them, or it seemed to me growing up that the arts were the thing that mattered the most to my folks, not sports, not politics. Um, what they spent their free brain space when they weren't, you know, surviving, mm. they spent their free brain space exploring things. You know, things artistic and usually things that were created. You know, my mom was really intensely private about her art making. Not to not to bury what you just said. I know that yeah. this is a hard time. You know, and I. I no, no, no. I'm just saying it's not a, not necessarily a hard time. I was just saying it's, no, it's an appropriate time to be talking about. I, I appreciate that, man, and I appreciate your your candor in and staying in that place. I'm finding things that my mom did all the time, and I'm finding them because she never showed anybody. Uh, and that's not why she did anything. Why did your mom create? To the best that you can sleuth this emotionally, why did she create? She seems to have been kind of a, you know, one of these, uh, you know, a natural born artist. And I'm, you know, I'm not a natural born artist. I'm you know, one that was, I was a built artist. And my 
mom was kind of a natural born artist, so that when she was confronted with issues that I believe were fairly, uh, you know, you and me and people who will be listening to this are familiar with, that issues that were facing middle-class women in the 60s and 70s specifically, having to do with, you know, power and identity. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, my mom, who was, you know, had degrees and had been a teacher, you know, was like I was sort of trapped in this weird cul-de-sac, dead-end, half-underground house, raising kids and wondering, you know, where her identity had gone or where it was potentially going or was it retrievable? And rather than turn to prescription meds uh, or key parties, she turned to art, you know, to drawing and, and collage mostly. That's why she did it, was kind of out of, a, out of des- you know, desperation, out of desperation, you know, to, to make something beautiful from something that she was finding very ugly, you know, this confrontation with self or lack of self or, you know, no, she wasn't looking around Louisville, Kentucky and finding that people were expecting a lot of the middle class female mother population beyond participatory and optimistic mother. You know, I started in in the mid 90s asking her permission, uh, you know, to uh, they would I would see pieces of her art in the house um, because once we started to leave home, you know, when everybody graduated high school, she turned kind of our basement room where we hung out as kids. She turned that into her into an art studio. And I would see collages that she was working on or drawings and, and ask her, you know, could I use this for music, you know, to put it on a record cover and, or modify it, or would you modify this so that it's less personal? And gradually I would just start to commission things from her, like the record lie down in the light. She'd done it. She'd done a great, she kept doing in pastels, drawing uh Gauguin's rendering of Jacob wrestling with the angel. Wow. And I wanted to do uh I had wanted to do like a core. Uh, anyway, there was a there was a Corbet painting of two men wrestling, and I asked her if she would use the same sort of color palette and transform these two male wrestlers into Jacob and the Angel, figuring that you know I was pushing her buttons, and it and it worked. I was pushing her buttons, and 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 then there was a while a number of years where she in the mornings did these. She called them spirals, and she would. Again, she would kind of work out her brain space through these improvised drawings that were in the form of spirals. And the last piece of work that she did was for this record I made with Emmett Kelly called The Wonder Show of the World, asked her to do spirals. And she had, she'd given up the practice. She was well into her you know, Alzheimer's journey. And, you know, and I wanted to simplify it. I was like, just use the primary colors because she was having trouble making choices. So I didn't want to give her a full spectrum. It's just, I was just like, do, do what you used to do just every day. And I, and it worked for about 10 days. Uh, and then, then she just sort of gave up. But, but after 10 days, she had produced a decent amount of work and it, and it's and it awesome work. And by that point she was so far along in her Alzheimer's. She's like, that's not my work. I didn't do that. That's, that's one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful, uh, instance of midwifing of art, I've ever heard. I mean, I, I'm, again, I'm speaking as if you're not listening, but I, I think it's really gorgeous. One thing I want to talk about as you as we sit in, in the family piece for a second is the physical space of the house. You know, I find this really interesting part and parcel to what we're talking about, and I think it either informs or deflects a lot of privacy creation. You know, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, the, the fat girl again in Ohio, you know, being in her room or, or being like, you know, what does the house look like? What, what was the spatial feeling of the house in the sense of, was there a lot of room in the house? Did you have a, a private room, like molecularly, molecularly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. This, is, this is a great question and feel free to, to, you know, interject with any other questions as I describe it, because it is, I think it was a very, uh, uh, you know, a, a effective and affecting space to grow up in. It's kind of a a modern house, you know, modern architecture. Uh, and it was built at the end of um, a dead-end street, uh, cul-de-sac at the end, and um, 
and it was built into the side of a hill. So you entered on the first floor, wow. and where tradition, you know, traditionally, you know, like all my friends, you know, their bedrooms were upstairs. They had a two-story house, and ours were downstairs because we were. The house was half underground, and my room was half underground. My closet, where my clothes were, was underground. So you know, had to keep dehumidifiers going pretty much throughout the year because it was pretty moist. And in the summer, didn't have to use an air conditioning because my room was underground. Uh, it had big windows on one side of the room, but the rest of it was yeah, just underground. So living in this kind of half cave, kind of hobbity space, you know, at the end of a dead end street, not necessarily convenient to walking to other kids' houses. And my my mom had a lot of had wisteria growing, and she was intensely into her gardening as well, and did right. lots of you know, worked. The outside outside was a beautiful, colorful space that my that was really important to my to my mom. It had a kind of a Japanese garden, meditative, tranquil um, design that, that she gradually built up. There was one pine tree that was close enough to the house that we could use it to climb up onto the roof of the house which could be really fun. Did you have privacy as a kid? Did you have privacy in the house? Definitely, yeah. Definitely, yeah. There was never a sense that anybody... I didn't feel like I needed to protect my space. I don't think anybody had any interest in my space. Mm. And it was kind of as far away from the front door as you could get uh, in the house. So, yeah, it felt like a little cave that was mine to create or destroy. Were there locks on the doors of your room? And I say that because there weren't locks on the doors of my room. And I always lamented that. I always thought that was kind of an essential because there's always that, you know, keep out clubhouse thing when you're growing up. Did you feel, I mean, did you want to kind of seal yourself away or was it a kind of social, was everyone's discourse shared? Yeah. I think that my room had a lock, but I've always been, and now I, you know, we sleep with, well, now we've got dogs. We close the bedroom door just so that the dogs stay in the bedroom. But, mm. but for most of my life, I don't like closed doors. I don't like locked doors. I don't like closed doors. Yeah. So I, in general, would not even close my door, much less lock it. It's just a, I don't know. It's kind of feels like claustrophobia. I'm sure there's a word for people who don't like closed doors or locked doors, but that's, I don't like closed doors or locked doors. We were speaking with Bonnie Prince Billy. I always find this really strange and bizarre, and I would love your definition on this word studio, because it's it's a word we throw around. Oh, this is the new studio album. I like record. We don't really use record that word that much, which yeah. which sucks. But I like record too. I you use it a lot. I, I pulled out a yeah. document of yours for shits and giggles, uh, word searched how many times you used the word record. I, my Microsoft Word exploded. Um, and it was really cool because I use this a lot. So let's call it a record. So, you know, we, we see this tag, oh, the new studio record. And I'm thinking... You know, I'm thinking of like Mariah Carey behind glass with with producers. Mm -hmm. So let's let's step into the modern age. How do you define the word studio? Is that a word, a viable word? Is it is it is it a is it run its course that word studio, or is it still uh, do something for you uh, creatively? I never think to use the word. So when I think of the word studio, I think of yeah, a sterile space in which. You know, because you know, again, going back to the open doors, unlocked doors, the studio feels very shut off, very closed off, which is the opposite of what I'm looking to be and do. I have a room in this house where I am right now, where I have done a significant amount of recording. I still never call it, never call it a studio, even though that's the only thing that ever happens in this room is music gets recorded. That's the only thing that ever happens in the room, but it just, I might, I don't even know what I call it, the recording room or the music room. I well, don't are, know what it's called. Are you in, and I've are, had it for a decade, yeah. Are you in the sleep house now or are you in the workhouse? I mean, th that's, those the, are... The sleep, house, the sleep house is where the recording room is, yeah, so I'm in the sleep house right now. So the sleep so house, it's, it's, yeah, go on, sorry. It's a private, because it's, because it's, even though it's not to be disturbed, uh, it's, it's not to be you know, sealed off, but it isn't to be disturbed. So when you're making something, when I'm making, when I'm trying to 
build songs from the bottom up. You know, if I'm trying to what they call write a song or and or record it, it needs a little bit of routine, discipline, and, and a lack of distraction. And so, yeah, the sleeping house is sort of the fortress of solitude where there's complete lack of distraction. Do you ever say, I'm going to work? or And what is the implication of going to work in the sense? Because one thing, based on what I've dug up and, and now what you're telling me, that there is workspace within the sleep house. <laughs> What's the workhouse? You also have what you would call kind of a workhouse as well. And yeah. is is the phraseology, I'm going to work or I'll be at work, ever used by either you or your wife? And your your wife, Elsa, is an incredible artist as well. I mean, her, her cross-stitching is out of this world. Yeah, we, we say I'm going to effectively what's the workhouse or I'm going to be at the sleeping house. She likes to sometimes, when she's working on a larger piece, she likes to work at the sleeping house. Uh, but but then she has kind of a studio room at the workhouse. I have a essentially an office there. That's where the computers are, uh, is over there. And that's where we'll have, I'll have, if I have a group of two or more musicians coming to work out something musically, they come to that place because it, it it's kind of built for disturbance, whereas the sleeping house is built for for uh, you know, for, for something like tranquility or control of the energy that that's in the in the place. And the other place is like, okay, this can be chaotic because once you open your machine, you never know what's going to come in on there. It could be the worst thing, could be the best thing, and then once people once you allow people in, you need to understand that they're going to bring any kind of energy that that they're carrying with them. And that's just something that we keep to a minimum where we, at the at the Fortress of Solitude. It would be cool if you needed actual crystals like the Fortress of Solitude to enter. That... I, I imagine them. I imagine them. They are here, yes. <laughs> You're very modest artists uh, from my vantage in the sense of, you know, we're not talking about you're going to a 20,000 foot recording studio. It's It seems like it's another modest domicile. Five minutes walk from one to the other. My question is for the young fat girl in Ohio, I'm going to get reamed for for calling her fat, but I don't care. Um, the young fat girl in Ohio who's staying in her room to record or to make a film, is that work? You know, what is going to work? What is the implication of that for the fat girl or for the fat boy or for the skinny girl you know um, because I, yeah. th- th- there's a self-consciousness about what we're talking about when one creates in private one doesn't willfully or immediately think of it as work but it is work and how much is work stitched into geography well work is crucially stitched to geography and, and probably this Along the lines of the Coppola quote, my impression is that historically there was a move over the course of the 20th century away from places all over the country to these centers, the, you know, the mostly New York and Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, it got, art got decentralized, creation got, you can live in Minnesota and create or, or. Spo- Once again, you can, where, you know, right. I think you could. Right. hundred years ago, but over the course of the 20th century, that changed. And now, once again, people really can create everywhere, which makes art better, I think, also. You know, it was really, there, was, there, there was a moment of excitement where artists were coming together in these big centers. But then that dissipated because it becomes, you know, a, a, com- a competitive and, yeah. and just referencing itself so that nobody anywhere else in the country or anywhere else in the world cares what... Um, what these artists are making because they're all just making it kind of for each other and for people with with money essentially whether it's you know, corporate you know whether it's the owners of record companies or film companies or if it's collectors and now people can be are making i believe again relevant work in every medium that that resonates with people all over the country and all over the world because they're accessing things that are particular to our own worlds as opposed to this shared competitive space that doesn't yield anything of of breadth or depth. Take the Darwinistic view just for a second, just to oppose your own viewpoint, which you obviously hold and I would agree with. But 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 we've taken Darwin out of it. You know, you don't have to just get to L.A. or New York or Chicago or Nashville. What, what what was the value of Darwinism or the attrition? You know, the war of attrition, because as you say, technology and maybe workspaces or being able to create in your bedroom has gotten us in touch with with day to day the 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 ways and means of of stories we couldn't get to. But what's been the downside of literally being able to 
stand in the place where you live, pardon the expression, um, and and create. uh, That everyone now thinks they're a filmmaker and everyone now thinks they're a musician. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we just yeah, did an episode. Okay. Everyone thinks they're a comedian now. I mean, it's fascinating right. and not funny at all. What's the downside of yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, so that, that is the downside. It's not understanding. And that's, again, going back to what I had said about, you know, our, our wonderful fat girl in Ohio. I think mistaking inborn skill for inborn competence, I guess. Uh, the, yeah, the downside is that if you say something quick and loud that the person who says something quick and loud will skew things for those who aren't, you know, who are potentially more subtle or considered or studied in how they are making things and how they're presenting things because there's a competition for um, people's brains. You know, there's competition for people's uh, ability to, to take in, and it's a, it's, a, it's a time thing as much as anything, but you're also occupying, when you hear a song, it, it has now occupied a part of your brain that you will never get back and that will not be given to another song. You know, that space is now, in whatever way, it's taken up by that song you've heard. Or that joke that you've heard, or the comedian's face, or his, his or her routine, or their character, or their parody, you know, we, the craziness that you know happens in our national government space is is too valid and important to watch say Alec Baldwin pretend to be somebody ridiculous uh, because because my brain actually needs to process yeah. the ridiculous things that are actually happening and I don't I don't want he's you know he's such a great comic actor but I don't he's intruding in my brain and he's not welcome there with his uh, joking joking around in that way. And, and so in the, but this, yeah, the Darwinian sense, it, it does, you know, you do think about the tortoise and the hare a whole lot. I used to get angry whenever, you know, when I was in my twenties, whenever I would hear reference to or see images of Courtney Love. And I just thought, you know, what a worthless human being that people are talking about and giving serious space. And when they're saying like her music is good, that she's like this valid human being, when it seemed apparent that she wasn't, that she was kind of aggressively opportunistic and careerist and, you know, insanely unoriginal. And now I realize you just have to sit and wait. You don't have to get angry or worry about somebody like that. They will, you know, they will shoot themselves in the foot so many times that they, you know, their lack of validity will become apparent. That's liberating to live long enough to realize that, that, strong things especially you know that that is a halfway decent thing about this uh you know this worldwide web thing is that great things there is time for people to find their way to really powerful things even though we are distracted by weak things that seem powerful for a moment or two it sounds like the f word uh faith it's i mean do you feel like you've accumulated inadvertently some faith in and stuff or just, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Send some to me. I don't know if you can email me, me uh, some, <laughs> like as an attachment. That would be amazing. Uh, speaking with Bonnie Prince Billy, sort of midbeat here, was thinking about uh, we had Paul Schrader on the show. Um, he said something that was really interesting. He said, and this may be again of privileged view, certainly it is, but he said about modern film creation, and I want to pitch it back to you because this idea of private creation also calls into the audience piece. Paul said to me that uh, now. I can make a movie that no one will ever see. And he said it rather gleefully, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I thought that was a curious comment. I, I have my own thoughts about it. But tell me about music in that way. Um, do you agree? Obviously, music, it, there's more of a facility than creating a film with a crew. And yeah. w- what do you think about this audiencelessness of art? Do you feel music needs an audience? Art needs an audience? Right, that's a great question. Most of my mom's, the bulk of my mom's art was uh, something that she approached with with a great amount of discipline and a great amount of thought, but it was really, I mean, nobody saw it. You know, nobody saw it. Uh, She wouldn't, she wouldn't, she wasn't making it, she wouldn't then like show us or show my dad. 
it was it was very you know a lot of it was dream journals where she would do a huge she would spend you know 90 minutes in the morning drawing a full color representation of the dream that she remembered from the night before um but in a kind of very you know kind of symbolic representational way and i think it served her very well um she was the audience i guess right um and so for me it's all about you know why do you make something i think you know why do i make something i make something uh with the idea that somebody else needs to complete the creation or continue the creation of whatever's been made um by listening to it and you know doing whatever their brain does with it but that's that's an integral part of what it is. Thinking about you also in your theatrical DNA as an actor, Actors Theater of Louisville and, and growing up, theater directors sometimes think the opening night is the anticlimax. And this kind of dovetails backwards to audience, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I, I would presume for an actor being on stage eight times a week or whatever, it's it's probably the opposite, that the, that the rehearsal is a prelude to the real thing. But it is a kind of quizzical notion. As a musician, when you perform live, is that an anticlimax? You know, the writing and the birthing and the recording and the studio and, and when you make the music, is that this, the stuff? And does the performance feel like an add-on? Or is this the performance no. just another brick in the wall, a different brick in, a, in, a, in the same wall? And I, I like that you, you know, you, you gave me a good uh, uh, jumping off point there with that, that phrase, because, I, you know, I think uh, I, I use Pink Floyd as, a, as an example. You know, they have one approach to making, or they had an approach to making records, which was that, you know, they spent a lot of time, you know, they might create a guitar solo that might take a couple of weeks to, to make. Um, that's my impression. It could be totally wrong, but that they would spend six months or a year grad slowly building a record. And those records, they hold zero interest for They just don't do anything for me at, at all. Speaking mostly of later Pink Floyd, I always think like that the, you put together something that resembles a song so that musicians have, you know, that's their script, you know, that's their, or that's, that's what they use as the skeleton on which to, throw performance and then one reason i love the word record is because it is a it is a record of of an event or a record of an occurrence and what you right the great thing about you know uh, a camera and the great thing about a recording device is that it does capture something and freeze it so that it can be revisited of course it's different every time that it's revisited and it's never what it originally was but that's that's the strongest value of the medium that in, in which I work. So when I, I'm making a record, it's about creating an environment in which things happen that are, you know, have some, there's a, there's a reason to capture them. You are hearing musicians doing something uniquely together or an individual musician finding something in him or herself and displaying it then, you know, that, that they hadn't done before and that, Part of what what you're hearing, you're hearing people. You know, you're hearing people do things and feel things and make things every time you play the record again. And so it's not just like, oh yeah, we want we practiced and practiced and practiced and got the song exactly how we wanted it, and then we recorded it. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> you can practice and practice and practice, but only but there still needs. Why are you recording it? Mm. You know, why did you record it today? What's the value of recording it today as opposed to recording it tomorrow? Why not? Oh, couldn't make it. Let's do it tomorrow. You know, you make it so that it's a specific event and, and people are in the room together doing something that they might never be doing again. Um, there's a, there is a great degree of preparation that goes into it, but what you want to hear is the uniqueness of what occurred. So I'm going to, and then I presume, and I know this is wrong a lot of the time, but I, I hopefully it's changed over the years, that that is... The value, you know, that's why somebody might buy a ticket to come to a Bonnie Prince Billy show is because that's what they're reacting to. And they may not even know it yet. They may think, oh, this is a record of songs. I'm listening to a record of songs that were prepared. And I'm not realizing that they're listening to a record of other things as well, a record mm-hmm. of performances, you know, and a record of interaction that is hopefully turning on parts of their brain that don't get turned on by a record that's really overworked. And 
and that that's what we do live then as well. So rather than it has nothing to do, you know, it's just, oh, we'll, we'll play a show because that helps you learn about the records. That helps us learn more about, you know, playing music with other people and for other people. And we will use these songs because ostensibly that's why you bought your ticket. And because it, you know, it kind of fits in nicely if we play these songs, but that's it. We're not, the songs have nothing to do with the songs on the record, except that they begin, they began at the same place where we are with them now. There's, there's nothing, you know, that was right. 19, you know, 1999 in Shelbyville, Kentucky. We're not in Shelbyville, Kentucky <laughs> right. and it's not 1999. Right. We're in Chicago and it's 2017. So there's not going to be any, these aren't going to be the same songs, but they're related to the same songs. So let's, you know, let's all get in this and see, you know, what we can make of it I, together. I, I love that fidelity, you know, it's that word fidelity is, is a, is a living thing, you know? And, and, I, yeah. and the other thing that came to mind is Robert Altman films. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm convinced Altman made movies so he can get his friends together, do pre-production, roll a few cameras and see what happens. You know, Altman films are as much about a documentary about the film itself as they are about the subject matter. So I love the fact yeah. that you give each what, stage its its due and its persona and its growth like a child. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. That's 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 a great that's a perfect way of of saying it. It's like and I and those are my favorite movies, you know, and I know that I watch every movie with that in mind. I think I think about that I'm watching a record of a, you know, a long event. Yeah. And, yeah. and and sometimes I will like movies just because of that, you know, and I will I'll forget everything else. I'll forget I'll only think about you know, I think of like Meet the Devil with uh, you know, Humphrey Bogart. Right. Because right. it's not a it's not a really good movie. No. But it's full of enough moments <laughs> Yeah, that yeah. It, you know, it, it it's a joy to experience. The, but the misfit, think, yeah, the every, misfits every, every, is another one for me. One of Marilyn Monroe's. Oh yeah, yeah, the misfits is my favorite movie, and it's because of that. Oh wow, because, I didn't know that. That's very you know, cool. And I've read, and I've you know read multiple. You know, there's books that were there's plays. There's a play the about make, it. Making of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, oh. there's a play about the yeah, making and, of it. Yeah, yeah those close-ups of Marilyn Monroe. I mean, you read the story, and and it's not about gossip. It's about documentaries. The record is a documentary of the coming together of these people. And and so the experience, you know, I also always think that the experience of making the record should be interesting, compelling and rewarding to the people involved. And that's, that's something that I learned with mate one, you know, that, that all of a sudden I realized like, Oh, this, if this movie, you know, at the end of this two months of shooting, if this movie doesn't ever come out or if I never see it or never hear about it, it, you know, it's not crucial because this experience was so life-changing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And not every record is going to be that way. Not every film is going to be that way. But I do like to think that the, the the better the experience or the more interesting the experience of making the record is, then you, I listen to it as a doc. You know, when I hear the record again, it's a documentary about that experience. It's not just, you know, were people there on time or, or you know, you were in a, yeah, a dark closed off <laughs> sterile studio space yeah, yeah, yeah. In which there is no real life you know like I, I it it always seems like when people you know are shooting on location versus if you're going to shoot in a studio or in a set you have to realize that that's going to be a part of the viewer and that can be great you know to watch the documentary movie you know a movie that's not you know if you're watching a movie that effectively is a documentary about making a movie in a studio <laughs> yeah on location all right Right. That's why Hitchcock films and Robert Altman films are on different ends of the spectrum. No, no, they're both interesting, obviously. But you know, Hitch wanted the, the hermetically sealed. He wanted uh, like a Ziploc freezer bag of a movie, and and he he was a maestro. Um, just one one of the. That's an amazing. I mean, those are such great documentaries to watch in and of them. Exactly. Of that, yeah. It's like yeah. You know, there's certain records that it, there's like Cat Power's record. You are free. It's to me sounds like a more like a Hitchcock movie yeah, um, than say her record, the greatest, which sounds more like an Altman movie, you know? And, and, and I love you are free. I love just how tight and immobile everything is. And it's just, everything is kind of feels in its, in its place. And there's no, yeah, there's no freedom to move, but there's still so much power in her voice, which, you know, there's so much power in each of the performances that, that Hitchcock got out of, his, his actors so much power that you're just like oh, okay th that's fine I don't need 
I don't need reality. One other subject bubble. I appreciate uh, we're speaking with Bonnie Prince Billy um, because I was thinking about another movie quote, apologies, um, I'm not that deep, uh, but it's one of my favorite Fellini quotes. I re- recall it was an interview that Fellini was given. It was it was probably late 60s, and the interviewer said, what, it, what are your movies about? And I remember reading that, and I was thinking, oh my God, Fellini's actually going to say what his movies are about. He said, my movies are about myself freed. Um, yeah, and, and I, I really don't like Fellini at all, and that's a good example of why. Because yeah, <laughs> I, I'm really not anybody who says that their work is about themselves. It's it's like I really don't care that much about you. I care about you and me. I don't care about you, and I don't care about me. I care about you and me. And if your movie isn't about you and me, then I I, I don't have the time for it. And I felt like watching movies, you know, Fellini or watching, say, Aronofsky's. Like, well, yeah, it's just like I. I actually don't care that much about you. I don't, I don't care if you're amazing and great. You're not amazing and great on your own. You're only amazing and great in the context of other people. And if you don't understand that, then you're fucked. I mean, well, I yeah. serve that quote up to you as an antithesis to what, I, what I've studied from your work from afar. This, again, backtracks to this idea of creating in private, creating for oneself, with oneself, or for an audience, all these undulating tug-of-wars that artists uh, address or not. But what about your identity in all these pieces? It seems like the need to draw yourself out has been part of your trajectory. What about that? Why take yourself out of the equation if that's even inadvertently what you may be doing? There are singer-songwriters that are inarguable just all about themselves and that kind of work just doesn't have any value to me there are figures that I embrace say in in film history even somebody like you know Frederick Wiseman even you always feel like you're he's in the room with you right he's in the room with you and cinematographers as well probably for the general public you know a cinematographer, what's that? That's not the star, and that's not the director. That's not even the screenwriter. So they don't have, they're not participating in this film. And yet, you know, we can understand that, you know, the bulk of a given movie's power could rest on the shoulders of a cinematographer. Mm. You know, the thing that makes you react to it and makes it a, makes it powerful for you could be all the cinematographer's work. And that person never has to insert their self in such a way that the audience has to feel like, oh, I'm relating to this person. You know, it can, it, you can triangulate and say, you know, push, you know, just say, listen to that, listen to that, you know, drum beat right there. Not realizing that, you know, nobody has to know that that's your drum beat. It's not about whose it is. Uh, it's about that, you know, that a, a space was facilitated for us to, experience something together. Allow me to wind up our last question a little bit. We've been with Bonnie Prince Billy, um, and I want to do a little bit of a wind up and give, and go to the, the, the cone, the nose of the cone with the simple question, but the wind up is kind of part and parcel to you being here. David Lowry, um, a friend, colleague of yours, is one of my favorite modern filmmakers. I think he's really fascinating a uh, young filmmaker. Yeah. And uh, I saw a ghost story and I was thinking there's a moment in that film this isn't giving anything away because I don't think it's possible in that film but the the film kind of pivots and you give this incredible monologue incredible. Mm-hmm. And I and I tell you what this is again with all due respect to David and uh, Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara I was so happy to see you in the film. And and here's the point 99% of the audience probably didn't know that that's Bonnie Prince Billy Will Oldham you know who you know the, I know that guy you know, I knew who it was because I, I kind of followed these things. Um, but I loved that moment because it wasn't Casey Affleck and Runamari, and it's not about them. It moves away from it moved the film away to an anonymity where the purity of it shone through. And film is in a really difficult spot. You can't make movies if you don't have Casey Affleck anymore. You know, you can't. It's it's a harder slog. And I'm and you know we've done that. We've litigated this, but it was so nice to see you because at that point a purity of the movie emerged. I just wanted to get that off my chest. Here's the question. What is the difference between privacy and anonymity? Oh, right. Uh, The difference between privacy and anonymity. Well, anonymity 
I will think of anonymity as an ideal. You know, I'll always think of it as an ideal. You know, with you know the very like the definition of an ideal is it's something that's unattainable. Especially, I'll think of it of an, as an ideal in what I do, which is you know essentially trying to sell something to you know as many people as is practical possible without sabotaging the ability to to make more work. You know, but specifically in you know I work in mass-produced media. That's what I you know so. There is also, you know, somebody who's working, you know, if someone is working, if they're doing tile work in bathrooms and here in Louisville, they need a certain amount of notoriety. Um, but, but there's a, you know, some people will want to achieve that perfect balance of, I, I know where I'm working next week. So enough people know my name, they walk into somebody's right. bathroom, and they say, who did this incredible tile work? Oh my God, you got to call this guy. He's amazing. Right. And that's the perfect amount of you know, you don't want any, you don't want to be on the cover of the, you know, local paper or anything like that. You just want to, you know, and that's kind of, I, I want to keep making music for people who, with people and for people that find it rewarding to either, to collaborate either as an active present collaborator or as a collaborator, as, as a listener. Like, as long as that's happening, uh, and as long as, you know, m- my wife and I are, you know, have our have our house and our our, you know, can eat and things like that. Then that, then, then things are good. So you know, pr- privacy is crucial because I can't work without privacy, and I can't live without privacy. You know, there's no not a life worth living without a fair amount of, of privacy. But the anonymity is, you know, it feels great whenever somebody, you know, like the experience that you described watching Ghost Story, seeing this monologue that, you know, David wrote so brilliantly and, and directed so, you know, wonderfully, that you're aware that most people who watch that won't connect that actor with a human being. And, you know, I like... Thank God. I like writing songs, you know, and, and, and I love it when other people sing songs that I write because it, it takes me enough out of the equation that it's just, I don't know, it's more, it's better. It's better. I don't want to do things that are about, that are cult of personality things beyond what it takes in order to get people to you know, listen again, listen to another song. If there's enough recognition where someone might say, oh, I've learned to trust this person, so I'm going to listen to this new song or be curious to hear this new song. That's that's a fine notoriety. It's detrimental to have, you know, to not be anonymous. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. so I understand that, you know, everybody is balancing compromise you know, at, at every moment of, of our lives, we're all balancing compromise. And just if you balance your compromise so that you're 80% uncompromising versus 20% compromising, your rewards are going to be significantly greater. You know, you'll have more at the end of the day, you know, you'll have more to work with in your life, you know, in your interpersonal relationships, in your conversations with people like this one that we're having right now, as opposed to if you say 50, 50 it and say, well, you know, I did this for, you know, I did this, but I, I wouldn't feel good about it, but you know, I, I, I needed to do it. You know, I really needed to do it. And that understanding of what need is, you know, I, I think I was, and, and part of it is, I was maybe fooled into thinking that having, you know, compromising a little less is better because I don't know the other life. You know, when I see yeah, somebody yeah, who yeah. Has, has taken management and done, you know, done certain kinds of deals, maybe they're happier than I am. And I, I kind of gauge it by if I see somebody who's done more things that seem to be tainted with uh, non uh, unthoughtful compromise, I usually find the best example from where I sit as an audience member is that their music may fall off, you know, after a shorter period of time. Mm-hmm. And, 
And I think, you know, like when I get off the phone with you, I'll have uh, a session with my friend Cheyenne's going to come over and we're going to be working on this song that we've been working on for a bit. And, and it feels more exciting and fulfilling than music that was pretty darn exciting and fulfilling 25 years ago mm-hmm. that I was engaged with or, or, yeah. or 15 years ago. It feels more like I have more capability internally and externally to do things musically that, that, you know, that I get off on. And I think a lot of that has to do with saying, you know, well, if I, if I do say yes to this, or if I say no to this, what will I be left with? You know, will I be left with something I can work with or will I, am I giving up? Am I just saying, Oh, I'm giving that up. I'm, I'm handing that authority off to somebody else and, then maybe my life will be something else. You know, maybe I'll be into bird watching or something, but I can no longer say I'm the music maker that I once was because I've handed off that authority to somebody else instead of claiming responsibility for it myself. In a world now where we mistake purity for pretension and pretension for purity, I hope um, for that, wonder, as you say, wonderful fat girl in Ohio. You called her wonderful. Uh, that's why I'm reusing that. I don't yeah. want. To, I don't want to insult her anymore. But uh, I mean, she's wonderful because she's she's been so generous to us in this conversation. <laughs> yes, I hope you know she's creating with a pure <laughs> in, a, in a pure trajectory. And I think your work uh, brings us back to that quality, man. And I wish you nothing but the best. And uh, this back was, at you. And I hope. Um, I hope your ride continues, and and my best to your family. I know this is a, a delicate time and and a, and a, and, a, and a time for reflection. So I really 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 appreciate you reflecting a little bit with me today. Thank you so much, man. And if I can ever be of any help in any way, don't don't hesitate to ask. Cool. Thanks so much. And take care of yourself. Awesome. You too. Thanks, Rob. Be well. What an interesting brain and man and artist to engage in this topic. And if we want to telescope out. For a second, if we can, we st- we start, we, one, starts in one's home as a passenger. One moves through and one takes in architectural influences, spatial influences, natural influences, light, shadow. Are there blinds in the windows? Are there locks on the doors? How high is your bed? How much stuff is in your room? Is there noise on the other side of the wall? We take that information. We grow up. Not everyone, but let's say this is the the universal Teflon we. And we then create, or we, we try to live a life of creation. And it's not just artistic creation. It's various forms of creation. Even accountants create spreadsheets, I guess, figures. And those those two acts sort of ping pong now on a on a on a parallel timeline we have the arc of the creative of the artistic creative and how technology has changed that arc and we could say it's technology has sped up that arc but we could also say it's slowed that arc down so creatives can now take their inertia and move it back into their home back into a home back into a private incubator for work, a private incubator for craft, a school. It becomes a sort of laboratory, and every laboratory is a school. I run the Modern School Film, and I I tell my students, you don't have to be in a school to be a student. To wit, you can be in your room practicing your craft. Technology has enabled that. And when we're then in that stage, we are affected by all of the passages before it, how we grew up, are we still in the same room? Are we in a new room? Do we have our own homes? Are we in a rented room? Are we in an apartment complex? Is there noise outside our window? Are there people outside our window? Is there wind? What's on the, the pane of glass? So we're creating environmentally or, or in unison or, or in, in, in the midst of the natural world, the architectural world, the social world. So those, those two acts are becoming one. And all these other pieces come in that we're, we can't 
nor would we want to protect ourselves from identity. Do we want to share our work with an audience? Do we not? What's the purpose of the work? Is it is it an advocation? Is it a is it is it a resume? What is it? And then, you know, we make decisions. We get to a point in our life where we are autonomous if we've survived that long. We've we make we make our own decisions and decide. And Body Prince Billy, I think his work continually is a, is a statue to these stages all wrapped into one. And, and it was really an amazing moment to catch him talking about his journey, which now is taking a new form as his mother is in the throes in the midst and the clutch of Alzheimer's. And I'm sure these are conversations, these are images that he's reliving. We are our home. We are a collection. We are an attic of our experiences. We are a storage container of all the things we bring with us and accumulate. You knew this. I had to tell you this again. Bonnie Prince Billy had to tell you this again. And this is good news because we can care for ourselves like we care for our home. And remember, what you store is affected by everything around you and inside you. How's that? We want to thank Bonnie Prince Billy for being with us today. We want to thank you for being with us here today. I am in a studio weekly recording this. <laughs> Define studio as you will. WHUPFM.org live every Friday. And we also have a storage container, the internet. Download us, subscribe us, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, murmurradio.com. This was fun. This was fun. This was fascinating. Thank you, Body Prince Billy. Best to your family. Best to you. <laughs>